lawyer, marketer, business owner, HR, payroll. Listen, you could wear a million hats. Um, and part of that is why I'm super happy to be hearing from Marco Brown today. Our topic today is how to stop being a lawyer and start being a leader. So it's really taking off that lawyer hat and really putting on that business owner leader hat. Um, I assume pretty much all of you know Marco, but for those of you who don't, um, and I actually didn't know this story. So the reason that Marco started in family law was a good friend called and asked to help her get divorced. Very difficult situation. He had never done a divorce before, knew he needed to take the case. That night uh, before he met with her, he stayed up until 3 a.m. reading everything he possibly could about family law. Whatever he read that night worked because they got a great result. Honestly, he'd never thought about being a divorce attorney before that, but after his friend's case, um, he was hooked. The part that I do know about Marco's background, that's awesome. So he grew up in a little village in Alaska, like literally 85 people in the village. Um, kids from places like that don't become successful lawyers. However, thankfully, his parents expected big things for their kids. They expected them to be like their grandmother who had a doctorate and was a special education professor. So Marco was to be educated and serve the community. And he searched since he was young to fulfill that duty, served a mission for his church in Italy, worked full-time with the intellectually impaired individuals for years, and clerked for judges in the third district in Iowa after law school. And while all that was great and he loved it, it wasn't until he helped that one friend through that family law need that he truly turned to family law. So since finishing that case, Marco's dedicated himself to becoming the best divorce and family law attorney possible. And I will add in and has uh, achieved that in spades across the size of his firm, as well as the amazing insight that he gives to a ton of other lawyers. Uh, we're not going to talk about this today in detail, but I got the chance to hear Marco speak a presentation, rule number one, get paid. And literally, I think it was the most helpful conversation for the audience of lawyers who listened to it. And just, it's so funny to me how much we allow uh, getting paid to be secondary or tertiary when that prevents us from helping people. So Marco, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey Jordan, thank you. I really appreciate being on. Awesome. So our last episode, uh, for those of you that was with Matt Colseth, Matt talked to us about how to network at scale. So in essence, designing these um, advertising campaigns on LinkedIn that instead of being hire us as a client, meet with us for coffee, do a lunch, do a Zoom. So if you're interested in how to network at scale in the digital age, you got to check out that episode, but don't do that now because we've got Marco live and we're going to dive in. So um, here we are, dude. I, I always love your story. I did not know about the, uh, the family law aha moment, but mm -hmm. I want to hear like the extension of that. Talk to me a little bit about the growth of your firm since that time. And then we're going to dive deeper in, you know, where you started taking off the lawyer hat and putting on the leader hat. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 2010. I come to Utah I worked as an insurance defense attorney in New Mexico, which is no offense to insurance defense attorneys, but the worst job I've ever had in my entire life. I, can't, I made it 18 months, literally 18 months, and I didn't smile for the last three of those months. And I like to smile, man. I'm like, I'm a funny guy. But it was horrid. So I just, I left and uh, I remember I, I, I went into my director and he wasn't there that day. So I had to sit down and like, compose an email to, to him. And then he didn't get back for two or three days. Then he calls me in his office and this is the weirdest conversation. So he calls me in and he says, Marco, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm disappointed in you because he's my religious leader as well as my boss. Like it was this weird thing. So he said, I, I'm disappointed in you as a man. I'm like, what the, okay. And he said, I haven't liked my job for 25 years, but this is what my family expects of me. And I thought, nope, we're not having this conversation, dude. Like I am out, like I will not do this, I'm gone. So I extricated myself, got up here to Utah and that's 2010. 
literally zero. I, uh, I mean, we were $160,000 in debt. I loaned myself money. It had no network, no clients, and just made a go of it. It's it's ten, so that's not great. I mean, we're technically in a recession right now, but that two thousand eight recession, if you remember, Jordan was murder. That thing was terrible, and couldn't get a job, so just decided to go on my own and do it. And thankfully, you know, we've we've grown. So I think I did the numbers the other day. I think we've had twenty year on year, we've averaged twenty six percent growth. Uh, since inception, if I remember correctly, it's accelerated since COVID, but I think, I think the overall is 26%, which means that every three years it doubles, right? But, but now it's, it's beginning to kind of, it, it, that's beginning to accelerate. Yeah. That's awesome, man. It's interesting. You know, I've, I have found in talking with lawyers across the country that family law has, I've seen the most differentiation between the effects of COVID. You know, it seems like you know, your firm and Elise and the firms that have a lot of stuff dialed in are going nuts during this. Yep. I've had other firms that were like, you know, it prevented so many people from going to clubs and getting drunk and cheating on their spouse and, you yep. know, and they can't afford to live differently. So they've, uh, they've gone through therapy as, you know, COVID has kept people together. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that. Yeah. See, for us, it's like cabin fever, right? You, you, you realize when, when COVID starts and you're all stuck together, you're like, I do not, I cannot do this anymore. So it really accelerated. It's decelerated. So it's leveled off, but it's for us, it's leveled off high because we were well positioned in the market, just like Elise and Michelle Delino and, and Billy Tarasio, right? Like they were well, they were good in the market too. So they've just accelerated since then. Uh, yeah. Our, I, I mean, quite honestly, our largest uh, issue to deal with right now is supply. Like we have, we have all the demand, but I've had to shut down advertising for the last three weeks and we haven't taken a new client because we have to hire two new attorneys. Like everybody's full, right? And so I'm searching for new new attorneys. So it's a supply side problem now. And it, it I've never had that problem before. Yeah. As a, uh, I mean, obviously as a marketing company, we don't, we don't see that issue, although it's still a problem. It's a much less common problem than the demand issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting set of circumstances now. Um, COVID has has really messed up the market in like a number of different ways. Yeah, and so I'm, I and I guess I didn't to go farther. So now I know your firm is Brown Family Law. What was it before you were doing Family Law? It was Brown Law. Okay. I'm, <laughs> so when unimaginative person, just like all attorneys and naming naming law firms. Hey, listen, I got to give you credit, man. There was a, there was a post and I think it was on Max Law where somebody was like, I'm thinking about rebranding my firm away from my name. And you were just like, nobody cares. Here's my numbers. I'm Brown Family Law. So no, no one cared. Like, yeah, honestly, a little bit of a tangent, but for those out there that are worried about naming their law firm, like you could call it one, two, three. No one's going to care. No one gives a crap. Like if Toyota can be, that's an ugly name, man. I'm sorry, but it's just in Chrysler and it, they're just ugly names, right? But you're still buying their stuff. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And, and it's the same with, it's the same with law firms, like call it whatever you want, like Rosen. So Lee Rosen, right. He sells his law firm and he, it's still called Rosen law. So what, like you can call it McDonald's and he's still going to sell because he does a good thing. Like it's a good product and good service. Um, I'm just waiting for somebody to come out as call their law firm, a good law firm near me. Just for the, uh, the oh, I know, I know. Yeah. There's actually one in, uh, there's, I think there's one in Utah. They call it Good Law, right? They just, they just went with it. Now I thought, I mean, if you're going to go with that, just call it Excellent Law, right? Right. Like, I don't understand. Why, whatever. I commit to a C plus B minus. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, go for the A, man. Go for the A. 
as uh, on the flip side of that, you have Florida, which told people they couldn't be like one eight hundred pitbull was uh, an improper depiction of the thing. So Lord knows what they would do with excellent lawyer being uh, unethical or whatever. All right, so it's two thousand ten. You've got Brown Law. Um, you're growing, you know, on average twenty six percent year over year. I guess first, when did you make the switch to Brown Family Law? As a when was that a commitment time? So that was recent. So that's within the last six months. Uh, the reason okay. we did that is because I have a. I actually dislike my last name a lot. I'm glad I have my first name, Marco. I almost never use my last name. Uh, it's it's super generic, right? So we're going to move into different states. And I started doing the research on can, can Brown Law, can I port Brown Law, right, uh, to have one corporate name. And there are just too many Brown Laws, right, or, or derivations of that. So we had, to, we had to go with something that was different. And Brown Family Law, I couldn't find any of those in the United States. Gotcha. Okay, that's cool. All right. So then let me back up. I thought I didn't realize that was um, so recent. So then as you're growing the firm, talk to me, what were some of the first hires? Like what were the first th people that you brought in so you can delegate some of this stuff? And then I want to talk more how you got into more and more of a leadership role. Yeah. Yeah. So the first, and this is actually a mistake. I tell people not to do this. So the first was I hired um, a lady to answer the phones. Okay. So she was this older woman. She worked for another attorney. He kind of went nuts. He got uh, disbarred. I took her on. So she was answering the phones, doing some paralegal work. That's kind of when I was doing when I was trying to do criminal back then, and I was doing everything. So uh, she helped out, and then I think right after her, but but I'll tell you why that was a mistake. So let me do that first. Uh, I tell everybody now that the first person you should hire is the person to run your collection system. Okay, so before anybody to answer the phones, you answer the phones because you need to get paid. So hire the person to run the collection system. So that was that was a mistake I made. But I, I tell people don't don't ever do that. Like the collections is ultra important. So do that first. So you hired her. Actually, now for a going into a recession, looking at your yep. accounts receivable yep. and being very hard on making yep. sure your accounts receivable get received is huge. That's where you're going to see the hit first. Yeah, and it's the easiest money that you have in your law firm, right? Like collecting on the work you've already done is the easiest money. So yeah, we're going to go into a recession, a recessionary cycle. Who knows how long it's going to last? But like, find find the low hanging fruit and maximize the low hanging fruit. Don't spend money on marketing if you're making less than ninety five cents on the dollar. It makes absolutely no sense. Like, spend that money to collect more. So anyway, it's me preaching. So and for those of you that are listening to this and not watching it, Marco is wearing a capitalist pig shirt. Just want to make sure that yeah. we uh just it's too funny, man. It's a it's a great, it's a great shirt. So yeah, that was the first. And then uh the second was a contract attorney, right? So I needed somebody to start writing things for me. And uh, but I hired her on a contract basis and paid, I think I paid her 25 bucks an hour, right? Right out of law school. And then she graduated into an attorney. Uh, over time, and then started. Uh, I hired a full time paralegal because the lady was helping me passed away. So I hired a full time paralegal, and then you start building out the structure under uh, the, the attorney and the paralegal structure. So I could do less and less of that. But that took like six years, right? Because I'm not. I'm not great at business. Like I've had to, I've spent tens of thousands of hours trying to figure out and I'm like moderately okay at it at this point, I think. But like, it, it's been a long, long time trying to figure this stuff out. So, you know, don't ever get, don't ever get down on yourself if you haven't figured out yet how to do this because it, it's not intuitive. 
but the commitment has to be there in order to to make that switch totally so okay if if you had hired the person for collections first do you like the other flow of how you started building out the firm uh yeah i i guess i i wish i had i i did it in a real haphazard manner uh for example hiring it, it was, this is a good example so i didn't know when to hire i would hire an attorney when i was up to my eyeballs in work like i was doing all of it so when i couldn't i had no more minutes in the day to get anything done and I had enough revenue. So if I hired somebody, I knew that I wouldn't have to fire them because I didn't want to fire anybody. So that it was an it was a very, very unscientific way of, of doing this, right? Not well delineated. It was like, I, I have to get this off my plate. So I need to go hire somebody. So I wish I had figured out kind of the system I have now back then. It, it would have made uh, it would have made hiring much easier and then it would have made the expansion process much, much easier, which would have saved a lot of time. And it, I, I would have been able to step away from that sooner to do more of the marketing and the actual business. And when you say the system you have now, are you talking from the standpoint of like hiring before you're at over 100% capacity or are you talking about having more of a team? Yeah, it, it, so it's building out the team, but I, I know exactly when that needs to happen now based on our our workflow and uh the demand for our services and then where everybody is with cases because we cap the number of cases the attorneys can have so we cap them at 30. so i know that when when everybody's getting you know at 30 i need to hire somebody or if there are 20 everybody's at 27 i need to start looking for somebody right and so you can predict that and you and you know with, with your numbers, like if you know your numbers, you know the number of leads you have in and your uh, the, the ratio at which you close people when you meet with them and so on and, and leads to uh, leads to people coming in and actually consulting with you, you can you can predict when you're going to need to hire somebody. And if I'd known that back then, it would it would have been much, much easier and we would expand it much faster. And now when you're predict when you're doing these predictions, are you talking about like historically we've done X or are you doing historically plus the 26% growth or like, how do you? No, just historically we've done X. So I, I mean, if you take, I mean, think about it like this, if you take the number of leads that come in and you know, and I have this many leads, we're going to get this many people who actually come in and meet with us. And then we know that we're going to close at a certain rate. So we know from this many people that we meet with, we're going to, uh, this many people are actually going to hire us. And then where is everybody, where are their case numbers? Like, how, how is that gonna, how's that gonna grow? So, and you can look at it historically over the months. So you, you assume some growth in it, but even if you didn't assume growth, you'd be able to do all these numbers. But yeah, if you, if you are assuming growth, then you just put, you, you figure out that number too. So the leads are going to increase by this much, and then you have that predictive capacity. And you talked about, so I love that you're capping the number of cases for the lawyers, because obviously that allows them the bandwidth to handle the cases the way you want. Yeah. Um, are you also though looking at like, if it takes on average a year for these cases to close and they've got these many cases at this point, they'll cycle through? Yeah, yeah. So we, we approximately know that number. It takes about six months uh, to, to cycle through an average case. So th this is actually, this is a really interesting rule of thumb for family law attorneys 
to predict how many cases in a year you're going to you're actually going to work on. Um, so take the number that you have right now of active cases and double it, just times it by two. And that's probably how many cases you're going to work on in a year or be able to finish up in a year. And I don't know why that is. I'm sure I, I'm sure it's off for some people, you know, who keep cases forever. But as I talk to my family law friends around the country, that's a pretty standard thing. Like, so if you're if you have 30 cases right now, you're probably going to work 60 in a year. So if you have a, but if you have 50, you're probably going to work 100 in a year. That's just the general general rule that I found that that holds. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense if you're talking about a case taking six months on average, then you cycle through. Yeah, per year, you know, I'd say like for us for PI. Um, before COVID, I would say you're looking at like six to eight months. So a little bit less mm -hmm. than double now after COVID Florida still trying to figure out how to get things caught up, but yeah, but exactly. I love, I love that process along those lines. All right. So how many attorneys do you have now? Oh, am I frozen? Is Marco frozen? I'm, I'm okay now. I was frozen for about five, 10 seconds there. So how many attorneys do you have now? So right now, uh, I think we have eight and we're hiring two more right now. So where did you, like, at what point did you finally get cases off your plate? Because I know you're talking about hiring when you were up to your eyeballs. Mm -hmm. you know, how did you make that transition or when did you make that transition? So completely off my plate, probably two to three years ago, uh, I had some stragglers. I think two years ago, I did my last trial. So I had some stragglers. It was a progression. So here's the thing. You can't just go from from where you are working on cases to not having cases. That's <laughs> not it's never going to work. So what you had, what you need to do is slowly offload the work and ensure that you don't have a job anymore as an attorney. Right. Because I don't can I'm an attorney. I don't really consider myself an attorney anymore. I own law firms. Like I, I'm, I'm a legal business person at this point, but it's a progression. So you need to treat it like a progression. So at first you offload some of your cases and then as you get more attorneys you can offload more and more but eventually my progression was the last thing i did i did was i would do the trials so they they would write everything in the beginning and i would go to court right and then i got more attorneys on and then i stopped i didn't go to court as much so they were the primaries on the cases but i was still doing the, the trial work and then eventually I just told people I wasn't doing trial work anymore, right? So it's a progression. And really the the speed of that progression is how fast you can grow and how fast you can get attorneys in and train them to do what you used to do. So, and it's so interesting because I had a different progression than you. Like for me, it was instead of me taking every, you know, third case or fourth case, I started taking every sixth case, 10th case, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then finally I was like, all right, I'm not taking any more cases. I'll finish all these out. Whereas from your perspective, you were really, you were really getting rid of the stages of the cases faster yeah. than the individual cases. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, eventually like I was doing all of them. Uh, and then I told people like, I'm not writing anymore. You can, you can call me, but I'm not going to write any of your stuff. And then it was, well, I'm not going to do these hearings, but I can do these hearings. And then I'm not going to do any of those hearings like the, the other attorney is going uh, to do it, but I'm still going to supervise the cases and I'll be your trial attorney. Right. So that's the way I went about it. But the way you went about it is perfectly fine. Like it, the, the point is that you have to figure out what your progression is. And my progression was uh, was mine because I really 
I love being a lawyer, man. I like I like going to trial. So that was the last thing I wanted to give up. So that's the last thing I gave up. Well, and and it's interesting. So I always talk to people. I'm like, look, at the point that you have one case versus having zero cases, that is day and night. You know, I think yep. like having yep. one case and having ten yep. cases is the same as having one case and having, or the difference between one and ten is the same between one and zero because you can totally get rid of reading case law and check judges' calendars and whatever. But from your perspective, I think it's interesting because in essence, then you could slowly remove the knowledge that you had to keep of, you know, like you didn't necessarily need to stay up on all the case law. You just had to have the right prep work going into the, the trial about the cases that applied to that case. So that may be an easier like knowledge switch too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was a good progression for the attorneys, right. Uh, to get them kind of up to speed on, on cases. And I've, I thought it was a good progression for me as well. Cause you're right. Like I didn't have to read up on all the case law but when we, when it came to the pretrials and getting ready for, for trial, I just say, Hey, look, get me all the case law and then get me the exhibits. And I can, you know, I can make sense in my head that stuff in, in four hours or, or five hours, and then I could go do the trial. Um, so I, like I said, I thought it was a pretty good progression. I know other people, other people do it differently. Other people want to keep, I have friends who, who own law firms and run law firms, but they want to keep five cases and, you know, good on you if you want to do that sort of thing. I do that because I just can't, I can't have my head in both of those places. Like if I'm going to be a business person and do this and run this organization in multiple states, like I have to do just this one thing. And I need to let other people who specialize as lawyers be lawyers at this point like that totally. that's how, that's how i have to do it but yeah like i said we're all we're all kind of different and you need to figure out what works for you no i mean i i agree with you because from like from the very big picture perspective of what you're talking about let's say hypothetically like your you know for me it's it's aaj you know the american association of justice or like there's that conference and let's say that conference mm -hmm. happens to be the exact same week as Max Law is a bad example because they're not doing a conference anymore. But like yeah. you only have the opportunity to go to one of those things. And if you are the law firm owner who still dabbles in those cases, it's a lot harder to decide which conference to go to. And as much as that's the big decision, that's going to happen a thousand times. You know, if it's the mm -hmm. local CLE on that versus a networking lunch with this group, like you're going to be pulled in so many directions. Whereas for me, I'm like a hundred times out of a hundred, I'm not going to the legal focused training the legal focused meeting the legal focused whatever i'm going to the business focused one the networking focused one the marketing focused one um and if you're you know even if you're dabbling in some cases it's a lot harder to make those decisions yeah i think so you're, you're bifurcating your head right or your brain and I, I just made a decision that i didn't want to bifurcate um uh, anymore and i just wanted i just wanted to to progress to the business owner and that but that's very difficult you know for, for people listening to this that's a very difficult thing to do because we are lawyers and that's our identity, right? Like we're taught that that's our identity and it's hard to give that up. It, it's hard to make humans change what they believe to be their identities. And I struggled with it for a long time. I remember crying about this. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that. And when I made the decision to switch over completely from an attorney to, you know, a person who owns owns law firms like that was a big deal and I, I remember crying about it so that's not easy at, at all but you know if you want to make the progression and really grow a law firm i think eventually you have to make that decision 
So was there, you know, along those lines, was there an impetus? Like, was there something that happened that caused you to want to make this switch? Or was it just a, an, an easier business decision? Or like, what was the, why then? Oh, no, it wasn't an easier business decision because the easiest thing would have been to stay small, right? And just stay Correct. as an attorney because that's how my head works. Like I'm best at, I'm probably best at that thing. But no, for me, it was, I looked at my life and I really enjoy family law but i didn't want to do it for the next 35 years even though i i'm i'm excellent at it and i could become more excellent at it i just didn't want to do it for the next 35 years so i had different goals uh, i wanted to make different types of money i wanted to be able to do different things and that required me to uh, uh to be a business owner rather than than an attorney makes sense i mean i had a i had a, a similar one mine was just seeing so many colleagues like dying in their office or committing suicide yep. from, you know, for, for me, it was criminal defense work at the time, but um, no, I mean, it's, it's very, the, uh, I had a judge who had the best line, life is a grindstone, but whether it grinds you down or polishes you up is up to you. And I think as lawyers, we end up getting ground down a lot more than we get polished up. And so that's why we love whenever anybody's made that decision, like you have that really focuses on that long-term, you know, view those big goals that life they want to have, you know, that's how, that's how you stay happy, I think. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, so, for example, I have um, I have what I call a three hundred list. So it's three hundred things I want. Uh, it's a Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey gave me the idea. So he calls it three hundred things I want from God, and it's literally three hundred things you want or experiences you want to have. And I put a lot of stuff on there, and that it's a very difficult thing to do to get to three hundred. Let me tell you, like after fifty, you're just like I kind of you know. I'm done. So, I, I want to go back to the place that I listed at number four. Yeah, yeah. But I went I went through this and for example, I I go to Italy a lot. And next Wednesday I'm gonna go back there and I'm gonna eat. I love, I love Italy. And one of the things on my list is to have a buy a two million dollar villa outside of a city called Bologna, which is about 50 miles north of Florence. It's my favorite place in the world, it's where my heart is, it's fantastic food. And I don't know any attorneys that are able to do that sort of stuff, right? If you're just grinding away, you're not buying $2 million villas in, in, in the hills south of Bologna, right? So, Or if you are, you don't have any time to go to them and actually enjoy yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're, you're like that Manhattan lawyer who works literally 90 hours a week and has a BMW 7 Series and never sees his kids, right? So I, I realized that with those types of goals, I had to do something different and offloading the legal work, figuring that out, creating a structure in which that's actually possible, getting a team together that makes that work. Like I have a, I have a number two, his name is Clay and he's the COO at this point. Like he's, well, he's the chief legal officer is what it comes down to. So he kind of runs the day to day of the attorneys and the paralegals and everything. And, uh, and that allows me to do what I need to do. Now I got to pay him pretty well to do that. And I do. Um, and then I give him a lot of autonomy to do it. But the point is that I had to come up years and years ago, I had to think through this stuff and then start implementing it. Because again, you don't, you don't just implement this in a, in a day, like you will wreck yourself and your law firm if you just try to do it really super fast. So you got to think ahead, like, okay, then this time frame, I want to do this. How do I do that? And just kind of create it and then go execute on it. Well, I always, I always look at it this way and, and let me know if you look at it differently. I think as attorneys, 
we talk so much about selling our time, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to do this work for X dollars per hour. But then as you make that switch to a firm owner, it really becomes, I'm willing to spend this much money to buy my time back by hiring somebody to do this instead. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I was talking to a, a really nice guy. He just started doing mediations here in, in Utah. So we sat down, we had, we had lunch, we use them for mediations and, and he's asking me like, how do I grow the business? And one of his, concerns was that he wasn't a divorce attorney for a long time before he started doing mediation. So he was worried about not the skill set of being, being a mediator because he has that down, but the actual like knowledge of the cases and how the judges are going to decide this or that issue, right? So kind of more more black and white legal, uh, legal analysis. And he, so he's asking me like, how, how do I do that? And I said, well, here's what you do. It's this buying time principle. So you go to somebody like me who knows the answers and you pay them their hourly rate and you sit down with them for eight hours and ask all of the questions you could ever want to ask, right? And then you write down the answers or you, or you record it and you just have that person dump that knowledge onto you. And then you learn from that really quickly and then you go implement it in your mediation. And I remember he said, I don't think I could, I couldn't afford to pay you that much. I'm like, well, don't pay me. You just pay somebody else. Right. But, it, but it was that, like, I can't afford that. And I said, you can't afford not to do it because what you're doing is you're buying time. This will save you two or three years. Right. So you're compacting two or three years down into like six to eight hours. That's what money can do is it buys your time back. So spend the money. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I know um, I was listening to uh, Crushing It by uh, Gary V, and he talks about, he's like, all these people sell these courses. He's like, my concern is if I sell a course, then I have to keep my secret stuff for the course. And I was like, no, dude. And obviously, I didn't have this conversation with him. But I'm sitting here, I'm like, no, you are selling the value of the time savings by getting you know, nine months worth of social media information combined into like a four-hour presentation or you know whatever it runs to. So I'm, uh, yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah, and and I think as you, as you get to a law firm owner, uh, well, one of my things now is that I will not trade time for money. Like I, I don't, I really don't do anything that trades time for money, and that's a real shift because, like you said, lawyers are taught to trade time for for cash, and when you're a a law firm owner, you have to make that switch if you're really going to expand the law firm, right? Like you have to change your mind about the way you look at time. Totally. And especially, I mean, like, I think it's, I think it's hard for a lot of small business owners. I think it's harder for lawyers because of the billable hour, because that is so ingrained into how we get paid. But ultimately, like if you can go out and generate 10 hours worth of work and you have the lawyers to do it, that's so much more valuable. And also, you know, you hire lawyers that are better than you at whatever it is with this case or have more time to put into it. And it's a win-win for the client too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're exactly right. So in terms of this, this switch over from lawyer to leader, like walk me through either, you know, what advice you would give to people making it or walk me through what you did to kind of overcome, you know, the emotional impact of the identity change. I think you, the, well, the identity change that, it, like I said, that didn't come easy for me and it took a while. So be nice to yourself if it does take you a while. Uh, I think there's that imposter syndrome because <clears throat> I'm just, look, I, I'm a kid 
from a village in Alaska with 85 people and uh, my life is exceedingly different than I ever thought it would it would be, right? And you, you just kind of have to get used to that. And I feel like an imposter. You know, certain people say, oh, you know, men don't feel it, but women feel it more. No, hogwash, man. I feel it every day. And 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 the really Still? successful- Every day? Yeah. Yeah. I probably feel it every day. I just get over it, right? But yeah, I, I, th I think I feel it every day, especially with expansion. Like if you expand, you're going to feel it. And you just need to realize that that is going to be part of uh, of the game. And you just have to say, cool, like you can walk with me, but you, you're not going to cause me to go backward. Right. When you say expansion, like you're talking about not just firm expansion, but like as you continue to personally grow more and more, you feel yeah. like you're constantly. OK. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about both of those things together. Right. Because at some point you can just stop growing and you're not going to feel like an imposter. Then you're going to feel like a loser, I would hope, but you're not going to feel like an imposter anymore. So it's the, uh, the downside of contentness, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, see, I just don't have that. I don't have that within me. I, I think about that. I'm like, I, I could, I could stop right now and be completely comfortable and have, have a very high net worth right now. And by the end of my life, right? Like that's going to increase, but I can't do that. Like I, there's something within me that doesn't allow me to do that. Uh, so I just have to realize, like, I'm going to expand and, you know, I'm going to take this, take this baggage with me and, and, but it's not going to stop me. You know, you just have to make that determination. So then I guess, I mean, for you, like, there's not, like, when did you know it was the right decision then? Or, or was it just like, you knew it was right, regardless of how you felt about it? I don't know when I knew it when it was the right decision. Like I said, the, the way my particular head is constructed is I, I just can't stop. So I'm compelled to do it is what it comes down to. So whether or not it, okay, let's do this. Whether or not it's the right decision, I'm going to do it anyway, because it's, it's how my head works. So I, I guess I don't really have to make that determination. Like I, I've decided to go down this path, right? That this is a path that, that I'm going to stick with. And because of that, I have to do things this way. Um, so it it, it kind of makes it it kind of makes it easier. It was just finding the path that was difficult in the beginning. Then all right, then let me try to flip the question because like I, as, as a compliment to you, I don't think everybody's wired that way. Yep. yep. What like are there are there benchmarks? Is there validation? Like what are some of the things that like some okay somebody listens to this, they decide to make the switch in their own firm. Are there external things that they can look at to know that they're on the right track, that they're on the right path, that it is working out, or is that going to be so unique to each individual person? I think the way you figure out if it's working is are your revenues growing, right? I, I think that I think that's the big thing. Because if you if your if your revenues are growing, if you're getting more clients and you're getting more money, then you know that your clients like you because m dollars are just like a little notes of appreciation, right? So you know you're doing something well if you're making more money uh, and you're helping more people. So I think it, the growth is really what it is. Now, if you don't, if you don't want to grow because you want to stay where you are, your vision is not to grow, but you want to stay where you are and just get better at what you do in your craft, that becomes a little more difficult. And I'm not entirely sure how you would how you would measure that objectively, 
uh, probably you probably couldn't. It's probably more your the results for your clients are getting better and better over time. You're you're gaining more prestige among your uh, among your colleagues over time. Maybe more people are referring to you. Maybe that's the way you can you can look at it. You know, if you want to if you want to stay small, but um, yeah, that's not my game, so I'm not entirely sure. Well, but I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's you need to set the right KPIs, the right metrics, the right you mm -hmm. need to track the right results to see the right progress. Yeah, yeah, and maybe maybe another way is like people are willing to pay more and more for your services, right? Because the better and better you get at something, and the more specialized you get at it, the more people are going to pay you. So maybe that's another way to do it. I like that a lot. Um, at, at least you know the the concept of finding the the right purpose for each individual person or the right the right goal maybe that's the uh, easiest way to frame it out yeah and and that is that that is very 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 important because like you said not not everyone's like me uh, i'm a freak and I'm, but everybody needs to sit down and figure out who they are and what they actually want to do and whatever that is that's totally okay if you want to stay a solo like 56% of American attorneys, great. Just be the best one you can, right? If you wanna grow something, then figure that out. But sit down with yourself and find out, right? Determine that for your life and then go with it, man. You can always change it in the future, I guess, but, but the sitting down and the thinking through it is very difficult for human beings to do because we usually just kind of go with the flow and, and do our deal. But no, just sit down, figure out who you are, what you want to accomplish, and then go do it. And I mean, I and I agree with you 99.9999%. The only thing I would add is I would add in the thought process of do you even want to be a business owner? Like there's nothing wrong with being a lawyer at another person's firm. And I think we get a lot of, I mean, especially in our circles, I think we get so wrapped up in this rah, rah, rah entrepreneurship. And there's a bunch of people in the group that I think would be in the, in the groups in the area in that realm that would be so much happier just being a lawyer for somebody else, they'd make so much more money. They'd be able to show up for their family more. But you know, you and I are crazy, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I I love people who are willing to work for other people. I can't because that just that's not like it would not work out well. I'm a terrible employee, so I can't do that sort of stuff. But I love people who can, right? Because I get I get to bring them in, and they and they make me money, and they serve our clients really well. But you know, the trade off with that is that I try to create the best system I can to allow them to go home to their families and live really super meaningful lives without having to having to bill until their their eyeballs fall out, right? Which is a, another one of the reasons that you should get paid one hundred percent because the the more you get paid, or the higher percentage that they get paid the less you actually have to work, right? And I think, I find that um, th that's really important to me to create a system like that because it allows my attorneys to go home and live really meaningful lives with their families. Yeah, well, that's, I always talk, you know, the, uh, we have that concept of wanting to be accessible 24 seven. And I'm like, look, you just get an answering service yeah. because each individual person who answers the phone has an eight hour workday. They just combine together to make your firm be 24, you know, 24 seven accessible as opposed to you having to be the one to do that. Yeah. Uh, it's just not feasible. I remember going to, and this is a little bit of a tangent, um, but, but I, I, I try to talk about this all the time with people. 
I remember going to the Avo conferences when they had those back in the day. And uh, is it Bitman? I can't remember the CEO's name. Anyway, he his big thing was you have to be accessible all the you know all the time. And I just thought that's asinine. No, <laughs> there's there is no way that 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 is acceptable. Like you're just going to burn yourself out. And if you expect that of your attorneys or your team, like they're going to burn themselves out, man. Like what you should be is effective within an eight hour workday or a nine hour workday or whatever it is, right? Like be effective in that time and then walk away. And look, I have a buddy of mine who's probably the most financially successful person that I hang out with on a consistent basis, specifically intentionally works every Saturday morning for his company so that, you know, other people don't have to. And therefore the company has the available hours that they are needed, but everybody, you know, but instead takes Tuesday off or whatever it boils down to. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just an interesting concept of your company as an, as a organization being fully accessible, but each individual person having serious boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell my, I tell my attorneys, you give your, man, that was a, that was a great pause right there. Hopefully Mark will be back in a, couple seconds so welcome welcome to 2022 where we all go through the internet i'm just happy i'm not the one with problems unlike the entire time i was in california all right might be a little bit longer um so we're with marco brown hopefully he'll be back by the time i finish this we're talking about how to stop being a lawyer and start being a leader so we've gone over marco's story we've talked about some of the pitfalls we've talked about some of the hiring processes we talked about a couple different ways to delegate things off of your plate, whether that's, in, oh, there we go. And now Marco's back, welcome. There we go. You Dude, you cut out a great point. You're like, and the important thing is, and then it froze. Yeah, wow. so what what I was, sorry, uh, sorry for interrupting. What I was saying yeah. is that I tell my attorneys, you give your clients your cell phone number so they can text you at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night. I'll just fire you now because I'm gonna fire you later. <laughs> Because you're you're gonna get burned out, so I might as well just end this relationship now. Like yeah. I, that's how important it is to me. Like don't don't do that. Don't expect that of your team. So as we as we get towards the end of here, I wanna I wanna give you the softball. Anything else? But I had one other thing I wanted to talk about because from the standpoint of you taking on more of that business owner leadership role, what sort of leadership qualities are you looking for in your hire so that they can maintain like middle management or help you on the vision stuff? Yeah. So, man, the, the thing I look for first when I look for people to, to go into leadership positions is, are, are they good with sales and closing? Now, this seems kind of weird, right? And, and, and slightly counterintuitive, maybe, or, or just disconnected. But we put a real premium on sales and closing here because we want to be exceptionally good at it. Because if, if we're not good at sales, then and closing clients then we don't make money and we can't help people so and those people that that want to get into leadership like that's a big thing so i know that when they become good at those skills they put in the time that's necessary uh and, and figured out what's important in the law firm right and made that important to themselves so i know that they're committed at that point so that that's the that's really the first thing and then like how oh, before you go, before you go yeah. to the next one do you see a difference between sales and closing because you had you seemed like it was listed as two different things 
Yeah, so Grant Cardone talks about this, uh, the difference between sales and closing. So sales is the act of getting somebody to know, like, and trust you, and then want to buy from you, want to, want to give you money for your service, right? So sales is done on an emotional level. People, people make sales decisions on an emotional level. And then closing is kind of part of, it's part of the sales process, but it's distinct. It is at the end, and the close is actually getting people to give you money, right? It's an, okay. it's an actual value exchange. So, sorry. Um, and that is done by logic. Okay, so sales happens in motion and closing happens by logic. And the close is, hey, give me $5,000. And they say, oh, I need to think about it. And logically, you take them through, you don't need to think about it because you've thought about this in, in my realm. You thought about this for the last five years, divorcing your wife, right? You don't need to think about it anymore. You're here because you want to do this, so let's get this done, right? That's a very that's a very logical way to to go about it. So th there is a differentiation between the two of them. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So now that we have that hammered out, you were going through the neck. Now that you found people for oh, yeah. who are in sales and closing, who are good yeah. at sales and closing. Yeah. And then then the next one is really the ability to to get along and uh, with people and then bring them along because I, I remember when I left the firm that I was with and and thought, if I ever started my own, I want to like the people that I work with. And I do, I genuinely like them. So they need, everybody that goes into leadership needs to be able to get along with people. And that's tough sometimes, but you need to be able to like the people that are, that are under you and they need to be able to like you. So that's a big deal for me. And then to ensure that, you know, you bring them along and, and we're executing for our clients the way we need to execute for our clients, right? Like people are showing up every day, they're getting their hours in, these are kind of baseline things here. And then are we communicating with our clients, ensuring communication's happening, ensuring that, uh, that the paralegals are communicating, that the paralegals and the attorneys are, are working well together. So, you know, those things are, those things are important and that the ability to do those things are what I look for in leadership. Gotcha. All right. So as we have a little bit less than 10 minutes left, is there anything else you want to make sure we cover? I mean, I know this was all, I, I feel, I feel like I learned a ton. So I hope that's helpful to everybody else who's listening and watching this. Ah, stop. Other stuff I want to cover. I, I was, I, and look, I'm just going to go back to the, the getting paid thing real quick. If that's a, sure, okay. totally. This is a, this is a gospel I preach all the time. Um, the, the first thing when you're deciding to get paid 100% for what you do is to change your mind. You know, we're taught by law professors and the bar. It, if your bar is anything like mine, and almost all of them are, like most of what they talk about is giving away your stuff for free, right? Pro bono work. So we're taught very early on that we're supposed to value giving away our stuff for free or, or law professors are like doing good or something like that. No, that's all, it's all hogwash. We can do good and we can make money and provide for our families and provide for our teams at the same time. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. And the analogy I use with people is to change your mind. This is the, this is the analogy that I think really helps them. If you had a hundred bucks in your pocket, you had a hundred dollar bill and your client came in and, and took that hundred dollars from your pocket, you would never allow that to happen. 
Like you'd put your hand in your pocket, you're like, you're not stealing money from me, okay? That's unacceptable. But we allow that sort of thing all the time by just allowing our clients not to pay us a hundred bucks, right? It's the exact same, it's conceptual. There is no conceptual difference between those two situations. But for some reason, we think there is. If your client doesn't pay you, they're taking a hundred dollars away from you, your family, your team, their family, right? So don't let your clients steal your money. Like that's the big thing. And if you think about it like that, you're like, oh, okay, I, I won't, I won't let them steal my money, so I'm going to get paid 100. percent Like you, you have to make that switch in your head right at the very beginning and be okay with that. And then uh, I, I will say, I want to chime in on that because from yeah. a psychological standpoint, from the studies that I've, I have, they all agree with what you're talking about. Like we mm -hmm. are more upset to lose what we already have than to not gain what we should have in the future. And a lot of them even say it's like a three to one. Like you that's would cool. rather not have the client take a hundred dollars out of your pocket than not have them pay $295. But at 300 bucks, like that's where you're like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what it is with humans, but in, I, I was a psych major in college. So that's kind of where I came up with the analogy. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to use that. But you're absolutely in, and totally correct. Uh, but, but when you think about it that way, and that's why, that's why I have the analogy. When you think about it that way, you're like, oh, okay, those are equivalent. So I'm not going to allow people to steal money from right. me. And I'm not going to allow people to steal money from my, my team. And th this is another way, if you're having a problem with your team, your attorneys not billing clients or not collecting, then you can go to them and say, look, stop stealing from your paralegal because that's what you're doing. Because we, you know, us, whatever, but you, you put it that way, like you're stealing from your, from the other attorneys in the office and you're stealing from your paralegal and her kids or his kids. That's not acceptable. Don't do that. Right. So that's how, that's how you change, uh, change your mind. And then. Well, and I have found that it is easier for you to do cases intentionally for pro bono or low bono or whatever it is when you're actually getting paid by the clients that you had agreed to yep. get paid by. Yep, that's exactly right. I have I have a case. It's the worst divorce case I've ever been involved in in my entire life. We had to go to trial on it. It was a, it was a child. It was a rape case. Uh, we went to trial on it. We did an appeal on it. We went back to trial on it. And then we had post trial enforcement. Uh, it was terrible, you know. And criminal criminal cases going along all this. I I think that case came out to eighty eighty seven thousand dollars somewhere around there of of time. And I wrote all of it off. I think my client paid me like 3000 bucks or 4000 bucks in the beginning. And then I was just in it after that. I'm like, okay, cool. But I was able to make that determination because everybody else is paying me and, and I was super intentional about it. So yeah. And, and I didn't resent her at all because that's the thing. Like when your clients are paying you, you resent them and then you do worse work. But I didn't resent this lady at all because my other clients were paying me and I knew, I knew exactly what I was doing and I made that decision. So I was, I love that. It's the, we get so caught up in that shiny object syndrome, but really if you know where you're trying to get and you commit to getting there, there, it's so much easier to say no to everything else and say yes to the right things. Exactly. Exactly. And even look, even if you don't think it's big enough, right? Like whatever, like just, just go with what you decided and you're going to, you're going to be way, way ahead. Totally. And you can always change it. You can always make it bigger. I know, uh, was it Richard Brunson talks about like, the amount of money that he's talked about trying to get people to earn has consistently gone up as he's gotten more and more people there. But like, you know what, at the end of the day, you gave people a, a goal to work towards, you gave them a benchmark to overcome. 
and you gave them a, the ability to turn down, you know, things that weren't a good fit for the goals. Exactly. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. For everybody who listened and watched this, this was Marco Brown of Brown Family Law out of Utah. Uh, hope to see you back on 8-1 where we talk with Amy Gardner about the secrets to creating great leaders at your firm, including yourself. Until then, have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you all back next week.